This is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, here with the Slate Spoiler Special podcast on The Tree of Life, the new Terrence Malick film that opens this week. With me in the Slate studio is Seth Coulter-Walls. Hello, Seth. Hi, Dana. And uh, we saw Tree of Life together last night. It we was did. my second time, your first time. Exactly. We have to get into the considerably daunting task of summarizing it in a second, but first of all, I just want your basic reaction. Loved it. I would say I really, really enjoyed it. I think that's something of a function of the fact that every Malick film feels like a real event in the way that they're so spaced out over time and that we don't have them every season. At the same time, you could look at it as an event that was overhyped and therefore disappointing, which I don't think either of us did experience. In fact, the day that we saw it was the day that it won the Palme d'Or, the grand prize at Cannes. Right. Let's talk for one sec about Terrence Malick and why a new Terrence Malick movie is such an event, in case anybody listening doesn't know his work. Sure. I remember when I first sort of came of cinematic consciousness in adolescence, it had been a long time since Terrence Malick had made a movie. It was during that 18-year dry that, spell. Like, yeah, 18, 19-year dry spell between Days of Heaven and Thin Red Line, and I had caught up to Terrence Malick just on video. But as I think anybody who comes into contact with his work is going to recognize, you, you sort of want to see some of these like really beautiful and elegiac and nature-filled images on a big screen and have that kind of cinematic experience. And if you only had it on VHS, you were sort of you know, what's next? Or here's this guy who made these two movies, and then we haven't heard from him since. Right. I actually only have seen Thin Red Line on VHS. It's the only one of his movies that I oh, haven't wow. seen screened in a theater, and I sort of feel like I haven't seen it in a way. I get what it's about, you know, right. but I, don't, I didn't... Are you just I holding out for the five-hour cut to be released someday? Like, you just really... You Has really that happened it. on DVD at this no, point? No, I don't think so. It's, but that's the, the long rumored, with all the extra actors who were cut out of the real movie. Oh, wow. <laughs> Maybe someday he'll, he'll open up his, his tins of old film. Right. But so, yeah, so he's, I mean, I sort of think of him as the Thomas Pynchon of filmmakers, not so much huh. in the content, right. but in the reception and the cult around him, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. he's reclusive like Pynchon. He is not very prolific. He takes a long time in between projects and you don't know if he's ever going to do anything again, much less when. Right, right. And I feel like he has a similar kind of cult of acolytes who worshipfully wait for his next move. Including actors. Right. I mean, you were saying it's very likely that Brad Pitt and Sean Penn, who are the two big name above the title names in this movie, probably worked for scale or free to work with Terrence Malick. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you'd, you'd assume. And the, that would be the only way you could get all the people in the thin red line, you know, in that budget as well. Right. So, well, so another part of the legend of this movie is that it's been done and in the can for a while, but he's been messing with the cut for years. And that there's at, at film festival after film festival, it was supposed to debut. I don't know the exact story of all this, but he right. would keep pulling it at the last minute. Wait, I have to make one more cut. <laughs> One more cut. Now that I've seen it, I can see why the post-production was the part that took forever. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, sort of shocking, I think, how much I think your reaction to this movie is going to be based on your reaction to its rhythms. Like, it's more than, I think, any of the other Malick movies dependent upon your willingness to sacrifice a rhythm that's been established, go into a second rhythm, and then have the other rhythm brought back and then have them try to be merged at the end. Right, and both of them being rhythms that we don't usually see films in, right? Exactly. It's not like you're switching into a known other mode, like sort of quiet indie slowness or something like that. I mean, this right. movie really kind of brings it from all sides at once. Okay, so let's get into the hard part of actually summarizing what this movie is about, what right. happens in it. Yes. I guess if you wanted to do just your you know, IMDb thumbnail plot description, you could say... Right, right I would say like overly severe father in West Texas in the 1950s. Played by Brad Pitt. Played by Brad Pitt has a few sad faces with his family and like a, a child dies and then we go back to think about the origins of time. Right. That would be <laughs> that's the first half or, or maybe 2 hours of the movie. Right. Like, All uh, prompted by a frame story in which Sean Penn is this middle-aged architect who's looking back right. sadly on it. He seems to be in some kind of midlife crisis. It's very, very economically sketched at the beginning. Yeah, so yeah. we don't know much about his life at all. In fact, very few lines are even uttered, but you sort of see, okay, he's busy, he's depressed. There's he lives a woman in a big involved. bleak city. It's- 
But so so that's the, maybe the DVD blurb copy about the actors and the extent to which there's sort of a narrative story about people. But now let's get to the flashback because there's a pretty serious flashback in this movie to really understand what happened between Brad Pitt and his son in 1950s Texas during the childhood of this kid who would grow up to be Sean Penn. Right. We must know about... The Big Bang and, you know, the prehistory and through the Paleolithic era and through the emergence of multicellular forms of life in the water and then other various uh, greatest hits from the non-creationist history of the world. Right. There's maybe a 15-minute long flashback that goes back to outer space and basically recapitulates the history of the formation of the universe. Yeah, and then Earth specifically and crusts forming and oceans, you know, Some really beautiful geological time kind of stuff. Amazing. And, and I think one of the things really interesting about it is it's not really always possible to tell the boundary between, you know, any kind of computer animation or CGI and actual really abstract nature photography, which ends up being pretty beautiful in the way that you'd expect Malick to do. Um, it, right. A lot of the special effects feel like very um, kind of natural special effects, and I was reading that a lot of them are done with things like paint and water and, and chemicals, right. and so a lot of the sky effects don't have, they certainly don't have a Star Wars kind of feeling. They don't really even have a 2001 Space Odyssey kind of feeling. Right. They're more like... They're not prismatic and like bending your sense of consciousness. They're actually, they look pretty organic. Right. They seem more like NASA space photography or something like that. They have a yeah. kind of a quiet perspective. I mean, here we start to get into, okay, why is he taking us back to the origin of geological time right. to talk about this childhood in Texas? And I mean, I guess the best way that you could summarize is to sort of say that the point of view in this movie, the person whose gaze we're looking through, is sort of God and or the void that exists in no, the yeah. place of God. I think that's right, because there's this voiceover... It's whispered, so it's difficult to sort of tell in whose voice it is. But it directly precedes, as I recall, this reverie back into time, which is, you know, basically asking God, what was it between my brother and my mother, between members of my family that did it? And as though answering the question, mm -hmm. the God director Malik slash life creating force says, OK, you want to go back to first principles? Like, here's the deal. Then we're thrust back into that. After we travel back in time and, yeah. and then up through the dinosaurs, oh, wait, pause, break, sidebar for the dinosaurs. There's a great dinosaur thing. What do you think was happening between the two dinosaurs? Can you describe that and then give your interpretation? There's some sort of not being a specialist in dinosaurs. I, I'm not sure. Like, there's, it seems like there's a few different species that we see of dinosaur. But in this one river clearing, this kind of river rock bed thing with water glossing over the rocks, there is what looks to be potentially an injured, smaller, uh, hind leg based dinosaur <laughs> kind of laid out on the rocks as though hiding behind this small rock from Formation. And a much taller brontosaurus-like dinosaur kind of spies this more obviously vulnerable-looking creature on the side of the, of the river and splashes his way or her way across the body of water. And they both regard one another tentatively for a moment. And then, as if to crush the head of the smaller animal, the larger dinosaur throws its uh, one of its legs really quickly just right on top of its head but stops short of applying a deal of pressure that would alarm the other animal. And the animal is just basically pinned there, right, against a rock. And they have like a moment. A, they have a moment of what do we do with this potentially, like, coiled and latent violence that's in this scene here. And then eventually the larger dinosaur pulls the leg or arm back and scampers away, sort of electing not to follow through on this potential for violence. I guess I thought that was a really great button for the overall sequence because it becomes... Because it's about compassion? Is it maybe the beginnings of compassion? Or a sort of unsettled approach to considering the potential for violence, which is really a major theme of Brad Pitt's relationship with, with his eldest son, who grows up to be Sean Penn. And Sean Penn's relationship as a young boy 
and that character's relationship as a young boy to his two younger brothers in several sequences, including one with a BB gun and a finger placed precipitously over the barrel of the gun for for violence to be executed at will. And then it ends up being somewhat mitigated, more than the viewer would expect. Right. It's certainly surprising because after what you've seen about the history of life on Earth, you sort of assume that the final scene is going to be one of cruelty and it'll sort of be about nature, red in tooth and claw. And yeah, the fact like that Hobbesian, it, right. Right. So, okay, so let's get to the middle section then. Post-dinosaurs, we go back to a small town in Texas. It seems like it's maybe the very early 60s, late 50s. Yeah, right. And, uh, I think and, it's Waco, right? There's like the DDT truck that will go through. Oh, that's says right. Waco. And Brad Pitt is reading the Waco Herald or yeah, something at yeah. one point. <laughs> is this where we both admit that we were either born or spent significant time in Texas? Yeah, I guess maybe our affection, my especially affection for this middle act, I think this is the best part of the movie by far. And just the part that I will remember is yeah. everything that happens in Waco during the childhood of the guy who will grow up to be Sean Penn. We should give the young actor who plays him some credit because I think he's amazing. His name's Hunter McCracken. He's yeah. a Texan boy who was discovered, you know, who was just the result of a huge talent search by Malik. In fact, apparently all three of the boys, there's three brothers, he's the oldest, all three of the boys were considered to play that part, and huh. they couldn't decide, so they put them in as, as three brothers. Before we even get to the part where the children in the middle section uh, who are going to play the roles of these characters for the rest of the movie, before we get there, we see uh, the eldest brother, the ultimate Sean Penn character, as a small infant, dealing with the birth and early nurturing of his middle or younger brother, with whom he's uh, incredibly – he experiences a great deal of rivalry, and up to and including throwing blocks of a brontosaurus at uh, at his brother. Oh, I didn't catch that they were dinosaur blocks. Yeah, That's nice. Yeah, yeah so this, this kind of uh, Abel and Cain thing gets set up very early from infancy. This, that part of the movie, the infancy montage, I don't yeah. know what the music was underneath it. I don't know what the effect was, but that was the first part of the movie when I cried. There were probably two or three times that I was just sort of quietly weeping while watching just because of the sheer beauty of the images and the right. precision of the... Uh, reflection that Malik was able to evoke. And I felt like that stuff about childhood was some of the best evocations of early childhood I've ever seen on film. There was a great moment of uh, sort of natural feel for the other animals in the environment in that early era with the, with the children as infants and uh, with the cat that just sort of feels very naturally sidles up to Jessica Chastain while she's playing with the infant in the grass outside the house. Well, this is always Malik's thing is nature, right? And in right. fact, there's this dichotomy set up early in the movie in the voiceover. I think it's Jessica Chastain, the mother, actress playing the mother who does the voiceover, who says there's a state of nature and the state of grace. Right. right. No, it's a little girl who's her when she was a little girl. We forgot that she's got some flashback action too. And this yeah. is all happening in this kind of sensory collage that, that isn't necessarily chronological. So she draws this whole dichotomy between nature and grace. We come to understand that the mother kind of represents grace and the father represents nature, which in Malick's interpretation is essentially sort of like the petty human will, right? The distinction between nature and grace is that nature is always trying to please itself and sort of like not caring about and grace is is not after that but something sort of just more kind of zen and blissed out I guess is like a really reductive way of summarizing it. There's also a strong class component to Brad Pitt's character where the way that he talks about money felt very true to me, you know, proto-capitalist Texan, like, production, like, how do you get from here to there? How do you move? Right, he's some kind of aviation engineer. He's an aviation engineer, but he's also trying to do all these patents. He's There's, like, a sequence in the middle where he's at a patent office, and he's talking to his children about who has money in the neighborhood and whose grass can grow well in their yard, and you know, because they have money, but he inherited it versus the type of, you know, person that you need to be to get ahead. You can't be too good, he says to his eldest son at one point, and get ahead. If you If you're nice, you don't do well. I guess in that sort of Malik nature grace conception there's this striving nature to improve your condition and to please yourself that I think is ultimately has its comeuppance 
when Brad Pitt actually goes aggro violent with the mother character and with the children at a couple of dinner time sequences. I really respect. I think that Brad Pitt character was so economically established and just so beautifully drawn in a few brief lines of dialogue. It's not like we get any background like. O'Brien was a harsh man, right, right, you know. Right. There's no kind of a, a expository voiceover about and, the dad. But okay, so we're, we've said all these wonderful things about right, the movie. I right. don't want to ruin every part of it for everyone, right. but I think we should talk about the ending because it's my <laughs> one big reservation about the movie. Yeah, it's just this strange, blasted heath expanse of heaven, which, which everybody just walks around and kind of pals around and pats each other on the shoulder and hold each other up so that the light comes just so through the whips and curls of their hair. And like, then there's some water that kind of splashes around, but never really above ankle depth, you know, not like a kind of threatening amount of water, but just a little kind of gentle wash and spray of water and people who otherwise never share a photographic frame together in the movie at any other point, like Sean Penn and his the younger version of himself, or Sean Penn as an adult and Brad Pitt from the late 50s, early 60s vintage of his father. This is the only time we see them together on screen, and they just sort of back clap, right? And, uh, and they wander on this beach, and they're all reunited, right? And the brother who died, we've barely mentioned him, but the younger right. brother of the Sean Penn guy, right. who died when he was only 19, is there himself as a child. And so there's this kind of moving reunion of everybody on the beach while all these strangers kind of mill around having their reunions. Yeah, pr- presumably they also had some tribulations on Earth, and there's quest- also questions this, for God, and then they... And there's also this here. music in that scene. This is one of the few places in the, the movie where the music rubbed me the wrong way. Uh-huh. I, in, in general, I, I really, really love the soundtrack. The original music is all by Alexander de Pla, who's one of my favorite movie composers. But really, the the vast majority is really nicely chosen classical music. The music under this final scene of, we presume, heaven or the end of time or some sort of afterworld is this very heavy religious music by Berlioz. It's an Agnus Dei with Latin lyrics about Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And I guess to me it felt too banally just simply religious after the huge void that the movie had left open about the question of God. I mean, essentially, we open with a quote from Job, right? Right, If there's any book in the Bible that (laughs) doesn't take for granted the existence of a loving God, right? It's Job. And Job comes up again in a church sequence in the movie. And it just seemed to me like it was either an atheist or profoundly agnostic movie that would not ever be able to answer these questions that are being asked in voiceover of the gods. And then at the end, it felt like it could be the end of that Clint Eastwood movie with Matt Damon from last year that just had this very banal and bourgey kind of version of the actor. Life. I, I did have, you have that same thing? No, feeling? I did. Well, I didn't like the ending. I think for reasons that are similar to yours, but not specifically that kind of doctrinal notion of it's being somehow abandoning its agnostic complexity for like some sort of doctrinal uh, cop out. It seemed to me like this was really a God granting movie, if only from that perspective that we were talking about before of a character in extremis sort of asking God, like, what was the deal with my brother and my father, you know, or what was the deal between them? And then we went back to the beginning of time to see creation as though God were answering a question, as though it's like... Maybe it is God-granting in that sense, but it was just such a bourgeois God, something too J. Crew about, like, their reunion, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, that's totally fair, and and I share that problem with it. I think the overall structure of this movie is one where there's so little explicit narrative information being doled out over the course of the two hours. And then there's all this really strange rhythmic play going back and forth between the different sections of the movie. It just feel like, in a certain way, Malik was sort of painted into a corner. Unless you actually do have the meaning of life tucked away in your back pocket as a dramatist, what do you do after invoking the Big Bang in the beginning of like life on Earth to tie up this story that you barely even sketched, though very poetically, and that's why it's disappointing. I think it does just sort of feel like significantly less profound than the than the actual experience of the rest of the movie. Right. I mean, the questions that he's opened, obviously, by their very nature, are not going to be answerable. Right. But I guess it would have seemed in keeping with 
the whole flashback to the beginning of time at the end of the movie would be like, and then the earth burned to a cinder and we never heard from any of them again. <laughs> you just actually wanted the Goddard Amaron. You wanted the apocalypse. Your sense of it as a religious movie or, or your question about what kind of religious movie it is or what its religious approach is is interesting because I think that there's this really interesting sequence in the middle where the children in the family are all uh, hearing a sermon from a pastor in Texas and Waco in the late 50s, early 60s. And the pastor's approach to the address is so – it reminded me of nothing so much as a, a poetry reading in a way, which is so exquisitely aestheticized. And But it, it rubbed me slightly the wrong way. It just felt a little bit too much that way. But I felt like – you know, Malik, it feels to me like it's his sermon in a way about – how God interacted with that scope and that time and that place. Is that something that puts you off? Do you feel that elsewhere in the movie? Or no, no, I didn't feel it in the sermon. I didn't feel it anywhere except in the vision huh. of the afterlife. And I was hoping that the second time I saw it, I would feel kind of uplifted and transcendent about the ending right. because I just so wanted to walk out on that feeling. And I feel like knowing that it was coming made it even a little bit more dreaded. Huh. Also, I mean, I think just in the, only in the last 20-minute segment, when the Anu's Day is playing and only then... There were some visual images, that some symbols, you know, that were, seemed too obviously symbolic to me. It was the one moment where some film schooliness kind of kicked in. Throughout the movie, in a really wonderful way, we see, right. we'd see a lot of thresholds. Yeah. For example, the scene where the mother's giving birth, which is just vaguely, barely seen, just alluded to in a few seconds of film. Right. But you see this gate open into a garden and her hand kind of showing, you know, as if that's the child's life beginning. And I really loved that. But suddenly at the end, it's like thresholds everywhere and ladders. And the very last shot of the movie, do you remember what it was? I mean, the very last shot was one of those very painterly sort of outer space looking images but the last shot on earth no, I don't was this bridge I mean I guess part of it could be that Sean Penn is an engineer or some kind of architect so maybe it has to do with him building the bridge but to me the idea of no, the afterlife strange. and then seeing a bridge was just a little bit too duh yeah I just, it, it sort of made me sad to end on a feeling of like, well, duh, Terrence, because throughout the whole movie, Terrence had been making me feel like, oh, God, you're, thank you for showing me these incredible things. There were so many minutes in the movie that I just felt privileged to be watching it. Yeah. And we haven't really talked about the cinematography and the look of it and the light. It's all natural light. No artificial light was used. Yeah. And the cinematographer, Emmanuel Lubezki is his name, I yes. think, is just an absolute genius of the form. He's the guy who shot uh, Children of Men, the Alfonso Cuaron movie, which is also one of those movies where the camera was just doing unbelievable things that were not show-offy, that were always in the service of the vision of the movie. And here it feels to me like what is really, uh, from a perspectival choice and then also just a composition choice, what's really interesting is that all the panning that happens or the sort of complex camera panning that happens while the camera's also like coming down, what is always showing is just something beyond the scope of vision of a human. It's, well, either just above or just below, right? I mean, the perspective is always, it's either God or it's like an infant. And right. The, then part like of why at, the infancy sequence cage. is so gorgeous is that it uses these really unexpected perspectives. I mean, kind of obviously you put the camera low down if you're trying to be a kid, but they were trying to show the point of view of a kid. But there were such simple little moments, like I was telling you, I was completely blown away by the scene where he trick-or-treats as a little boy. Right. Also just a couple shots. And you see this jack-o'-lantern from a little bit below with the person's hands holding it down, sort of the way that you might see a jack-o'-lantern for the first time when you're a toddler and always remember it. And I just thought that was so beautifully and simply done. There's some other things, too, like where, you know, it's not a revelation to say that if you're trying to show a kid's perspective that you would have the camera be closer to the ground. But there are these great moments where it just kind of hops up 
for a moment and then floats back down as though you're sort of as though you're a kid and you're on your tippy toes and you sort of jump up to try to see something and then kind of fall back down very quickly and that's done so sensitively and in a not jarring way just that the mere fact that this was made and that all of these people executed this artistic vision so successfully is kind of incredible to me and makes it seem like i understand why it takes so long in between movies you have to get all these people that are on the same page and it's a very odd page to be on and from everything you hear about the working process with malik he's pretty cryptic right you know i think he loves to sit around and and talk about ideas with people but that the movie takes quite a long time to emerge from those discussions so he really has to find collaborators who are patient and who get it right and i think it's interesting to see pitt really get it Uh, yeah brad pitt really took it to the next level for me in this movie because sean penn's not he didn't have a ton to work with but he didn't make a ton out of the little that he had to work with yeah and it wasn't completely sean's fault but i did feel a little bit of a sinking sensation in the modern section because not because it wasn't well done but just because i felt like i get it sean penn's depressed in the modern day and he's surrounded by sterile skyscrapers now take me back to that small town in texas (laughs) you know but brad pitt really i've always liked him as a performer, especially in comic kinds of roles. I love him in, in uh, like Burn After Reading right, and that kind of thing. Uh-huh. Or um, True Romance. You know, those like funny little cameos that he does. But his looks have always kind of gotten in his way. He's almost too good looking and it, and it gets in his own way. Yeah. But in this movie, I really felt like I was seeing him create a character at a very high level with, like you say, not that much script to work with. All right. Well, Seth, short of a glass of whiskey, I think we just about <laughs> did recapitulate our conversation from last night. And thanks so much for coming in to have it with me. Uh, thanks for inviting me. Our producer is Krishnan Vasudevan. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah.